What's happening? What's happening? What's happening, blues people? I got to put that back up there. I'm sorry, because this is this just kind of says everything for me. I, I just want to read this real quick. Captured Negroes on way to Convention Hall during Tulsa race riot, June 1st, 1921. Okay. So, man, gentlemen, I, I would like to thank you to uh, the African American Folklorist, which is a division of Jack Dapper Blues. Um, what we like to do here is raise ethnic and cultural awareness of African-American traditional music, traditional art, the Black experience, and how all these things kind of work together. I was able to witness the two of you in Tulsa uh, share the actual story of Greenwood and um, what happened that led up to what happened during and what happened after the massacre and riots. Mr. Walter, what's happening, my brother? That he That's a seminal that's living out in uh, Oklahoma right there. He, he actually keeps me on point <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when I kind of go to the left with my information. What's happening, brother? Uh, so you gentlemen set the stage of what actually happened and the results of these happenings so well that as I mulled over your presentations, I ended up reworking and writing my entire presentation for, <laughs> for Black Oklahoma uh, with the African-American Folklore Section at the American Folklore Society. That's how moved I was by what you gentlemen shared. So before we go into the story of what really happened in Tulsa, I just want to take a moment and ask the two of you, uh, Carlos and Courage, to not just introduce yourself, but share a couple of the significant works that you're doing in Tulsa and in Oklahoma and for the culture right now, please. Yeah. Um... So I wrote a, uh, a book called The Victory of Greenwood. Uh, and in the book, I, I kind of go through it as a series of biographies. Um, it's not an academic book. It's not a history book. Um, I really wanted to just tell the stories of um, some of the more prominent families that grew up in Greenwood um, and really highlight a lot of the successes that have come out of Greenwood. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't realize just how many historically significant people have come from this area and how historically significant it is a place regardless of the, of the 1921 massacre. That's sort of the event that everybody talks about, but we don't talk about the history of this place before 1921. We don't talk about the history of it after 1921. We don't talk about Count Basie staying in, in Greenwood in 1926 and, and redefining, he, he describes in the first chapter of his autobiography how he changed his whole sound, just like you changed your whole presentation. 
he changed his whole approach to jazz and, and brought that with him and brought musicians from Oklahoma with him to Chicago. And, and that's how you get that swing, swing jazz, Count Basie sound. Um, it didn't come from Chicago. It came from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so many other things. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Um, and, and you just need to read my book, The Victory Greenwood. But uh, <laughs> I recommend right it. Right now, um, uh, one of the things I'm working on is, um, you know, we, we, we don't even have here in Tulsa a, a well-defined um, sense of what the real boundaries of Greenwood, the neighborhood, were. We don't, we have like a rough outline, but it's not, if you check it with the census, it's not correct. There's so many different sources that conflict with each other. So um, one of the things I'm trying to do is create an online map um, that's interactive where you can actually see these are the specific buildings, houses, and kind of going block by block and, and um, really doing a thorough map of Greenland because we, we don't have that yet as a city. And I'll, I'll pass the mic over to Krish. Oh, bro. No. First of all, <laughs> Victory of Greenwood is, is a fabulous book. I'm, I'm going to teach it again in, um, in the spring. Um, but you failed to mention the Greenwood Stories Project. So before I say anything else, you, I think you need to talk about that, too. Well, yeah. So that's another project um, that uh, is uh, uh, right now. Curation and I are both part of a, a non, nonprofit called Tri-City Collective. And one of the projects of Tri-City Collective is to collect stories of Greenwood elders who are living in Greenwood today and what their experiences um, have been, especially before the building of the highways. Um, that is a history that, that really hasn't been talked about. And, and here we have a living generation in this city who haven't had the opportunity to tell their stories. Um, and so we're kind of providing that that platform. And so that's something that I'm I'm happy to be to be working on as well. And shout out to Sister Autumn Brown PhD. She's part of that as well, yes? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I I was actually just with Autumn about an hour ago. Um listening to John Meacham when which was a pretty amazing uh speech. John Meacham talking about John Lewis and the, the biography he wrote of John Lewis. And it was, it was just a remarkable talk. Um, but Lamont, thank you uh, for having us on. Um, and it's always good to roll with my brother, Carlos. Uh, one of my mentors, uh, Baba Hakim Adabudi said, you know, always surround yourself with folks who are smarter than you. And that's uh, what I try to do. Uh, and Carlos is, is, is one, the spear, the tip of that spear of that junta. So uh, it's always good to be with Carlos. Um, so what I so what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now, um, and I think what what Tri City is really doing right now, a couple of several things regarding um, regarding Greenwood. One, I'm currently teaching a, a, a class on the history and evolution of Greenwood. Um, it's a free class for the community, anyone who wants to come through, and it is at the Greenwood Cultural Center, which is the oldest. Um, institution in Greenwood dedicated to the preservation um, of the history of the district, um, founded in 1980. So um, teaching that class weekly, um, I'll be teaching um, the class for credit at OSU Tulsa in this, no, I'm not OSU Tulsa, I'm sorry, at uh, the, for the University of Tulsa um, in the spring. Um, so 
that's something that I have going on. Also, um, again, working with Carlos on the on the Greenwood Stories project. Need to be a little more engaged in that so we can keep that moving. Um, and we, uh, as Tri-City Collective, we produce um, several, well, we'll say at least one or two events that uh, a series that are conversation series for the public, particularly and specifically real talk, where we discuss issues, um, bring in a panel of experts on that particular topic, again, free to the community. Um, and so we had several conversations about Greenwood um, last year and probably need to do one again uh, moving forward. And then um, we produce a radio show called Focus Black Oklahoma, which broadcasts on KOSU radio, um, and which is an NPR affiliate. And the show uh, airs on two of the state's NPR affiliates. And we produced uh, now, in a, I can say, an award-winning three-part series um, called The Battle for Greenwood. Um, and if anyone out there is interested, uh, you can go to KOSU.org or, or search Focus Black Oklahoma um, on KOSU's website. It's also anywhere you can um, get your, anywhere you get your podcasts. And in that three-part series, we really go in uh, a deep dive on uh, the history of it really, it really explores, it goes pre-massacre as well as post, but it, it has a great deal to do when I see uh, their brother Wallace is out checking out land records. And one of the things that we do um, in the, in the, in the three-part series is engage in a deep investigation about the land, um, about who owns the land, about who doesn't own the land, about how folks came to, came into possession of the land, you know, and, and Carlos can speak to this too, that um, there is still a very uh, active debate about um, who owned the land that was Greenwood before it was Greenwood, right? Was it Cherokee? Was it Creek? Um, you know, it is at a point, was it Osage? Was it Caddo, right? Um, there, uh, it is at a point where all of the native a tribe or lands from all of those um, all of those nations actually meet right at the border of the Osage Nation too. So it's a very the history of the land and the history of the district is is as Carlos mentioned it's more than uh, it's more than the massacre and where we've leaned in on is that history and that evolution of what was one of the most affluent black communities uh, in the nation and it's time. Well, you know, I, I really think that's a good place to start, particularly because uh, you two brothers, as eloquent as can be, utilize the term or the name Greenwood, right? Um, I, I want to chime off of, of Carlos saying most people just know of Tulsa from the riots. Um, but I don't even think they understand that the the name of the actual community in the district so can, can we start there right and whoever wants to go jump on in yeah you know a lot a lot of folks you know and you see you hear the phrase black wall street thrown around uh there were many many black wall streets all over the country um in durham north carolina in places in arkansas and throughout the south <clears throat> and so Black Wall Street actually was not the name of this area. It was the, the, 
the neighborhood was named Greenwood after the street that it was on, which uh, was named by uh, enrolled Creek Nation members who had drawn out the um, original street grid for the city of Tulsa in 1902. Um, and they, they were from Greenwood, Arkansas. So the name Greenwood comes from Greenwood, Arkansas. It was named by uh, uh, those those two Creek Nation um, brothers. Was it the um, I can't remember their names? Q. Yeah, it's escaping me right now too. But keep rolling. <laughs> what, look, and, is and, Ottawa girly part of those two brothers? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so so this so this is all in 1902. Okay. Right. O.W. Gurley and his wife. Uh, had moved. He was working actually um, for President Grover Cleveland at, in the postal at the postal service. He had a national appointment at the postal service. He leaves that national post to become a part of the land runs that were happening in Indian Territory under uh, President Grover Cleveland. Uh, and the, so the, the land, so the Trail of Tears, you know, comes into this history because. It ends at this place that ends up being called Indian Territory, the eastern half of what would in the future become the state of Oklahoma. Um, so you have all these tribes that have been displaced from their ancestral lands to, quote unquote, Indian Territory, um, including the Creek Nation. So you have a Creek Nation, the Creek Nation playing a big part in building the city of Tulsa. Um, and then you have this this area that's established. So so the Gurleys, Ottawa O. W. Gurley and his wife Emma, part of the land runs. They settle in the northern part of Oklahoma, um, uh, in a town called Perry, um, which is about an hour and a half north of here. Um, and when oil is discovered in 1901, they come. They decide that they want to come down to this new boom town called Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, so they make it down here in about 1905. And the first purchase of land of this neighborhood that would eventually come to be known as Greenwood was purchased at the, at the intersection of four railroad tracks. Um, and then the name on the land deed is Emma Gurley. So the founder of Black Wall Street is actually Emma Gurley, a black woman. And you have a, a, a neighborhood that prospers over 15 years and grows um, because it's so accepting of um, everyone else. Greenwood does not um, exclude anyone. If you're black, if you're native, if you're black and native, if you're Latino, if you're Asian, we found an Asian grocery store. We found a, a Latino grocery store. We found a Russian Jewish grocery store. Hmm. Um, and that Russian Jewish grocery store was founded by one of the, who is today one of the most wealthy families in Tulsa, uh, the Zero family. So Greenwood doesn't, doesn't reject anyone, doesn't exclude anyone. And it's part of the reason why it became so successful and so wealthy. Um, you had, um, you know, the, the, um, the person who ran the projector, the projector operator for the Williams Dreamland Theater, 
most famous theater in Greenwood was a white man. There were a lot of white employees, people who worked and lived in Greenwood. Um, they didn't turn any customers away. You know, who it was it was said of uh, Lula Williams uh, soda fountain that there were more proposals, marriage proposals in her soda fountain than any other place in Tulsa and any other place in the whole city. Wow. You know? So the, the, the origin of Greenwood and its culture is, is sort of what made it so, so successful. Well, l- l- let me ask a question. I'm going to jump around here. I have specific questions about Greenwood and Tulsa, but raising the point that the, the, the diverse group of people that kind of collectively made this a success, I think of Boley, Oklahoma, and uh, I believe his name is McBain. I don't remember. I I, I come across Boley through um, uh, the gentleman who owned Dolphins of Hollywood, John Dolphin, right? Because um, his family was the first one of the first families that moved there. And what I find is Boley. Bowley's claim to fame is a reverse sundown town and it's specific to uh, black or black indigenous, however, you know. So I'm I'm a little, uh, hmm. I was not aware of the diverse nature of Tulsa is where I'm going, right? Because it, it, was, it was kind of presented as it was just a black town that was attacked by his white neighbors. So I guess to sidestep from the actual narrative, I would like to ask, if you know, because this could be a very unfair question. If it is, please forgive me. How did that narrative get, you know, where it just removes all diverse groups of people that kind of built this community and makes it a black versus white situation? Well, because that's, a, that's a very easy narrative to construct because um, it's us versus them. Um, and B, because there's some partial truth to it, right? You know, there's at least some truth to that to an extent. I mean, again, as Carlos mentioned, Greenwood was diverse. Greenwood was accepting. Greenwood was inviting. Greenwood was Jim Crow, <laughs> was created because of Jim Crow, right? So, so it's all there, right? You know, it's both and. Um, and, and I think one of the things again, uh, about the district, um, is not only right that when the girlies, um, you know, when Emma Gurley bought that first plot of land, um, and then, you know, folks came, um, there, you know, a girly himself was a big booster back in the day, booster being folks who were inviting, calling folks, move to Green, move to Tulsa, move to Greenwood. Um, you know, it's a, a place where a black, a black person can live uh, more freely, not under the same sort of yoke of Jim Crow in the South, you know. So it would, folks were actually recruiting folks as, 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 as Greenwood being a kind of a Negro paradise in a way, right? Um, and in fact, in many ways, it, it was, but it was very much in, you know, it was very much Jim Crow segregated Tulsa, you know, Oklahoma, right? And it wasn't, and I think a part of that, and, and I want to make sure that I speak carefully, because 
the state wasn't established until 1907. So it's still, it's Jim Crow Indian territory, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think that's an important thing for us to, to, to remember as we, as we move forward with this and for, for folks viewing to understand that we're still talking pre-statehood, right? Um, and in pre-statehood Oklahoma, there were two black men who served in, this, in the House of Representatives in the pre, pre-statehood legislature. As soon as statehood was granted, those two men were kicked. They were kicked out. They were moved, right? Um, and so, and also to piggyback on something Carlos said, you know, he mentioned the, the Trail of Tears, uh, the Long Walk, forced removal. And that is how the majority of black folks uh, got here in the first place with those five tribes, either as freedmen, um, it married, um, you know, or, or property. Right. And so, um, but it's very interesting when you think about as the, just to, again, on what Carlos just said, Greenwood was welcoming, but Greenwood was welcoming in the context of a Jim Crow segregation. So could I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, is it a fair statement to say those affected by Jim Crow, meaning black and every other um, ethnic group, right? BIPOC was what they what is referred to as today. These are the groups of people that were were were, were uh, welcomed. Yeah, absolutely, and and both welcomed and and celebrated. Um, I, uh, spent a lot of time researching my book, looking through, uh, the newspapers of the time. There was two newspapers, the Oklahoma Sun and the Tulsa Star. And the Tulsa Star would, I would see these issues and they would have these huge giant headlines across the whole front of the paper, uh, saying, you know, Greenwood celebrates its women. Um, and so here was a place that was celebrating and lifting up uh, black women business owners and leaders of the community and saying, you know, we need more strong women leaders like this. Um, like like you was saying earlier, um, recruiting people to move to Greenwood um, by saying, you know, we're going to we're going to lift up uh, the women of our community. And that's something you really just didn't see um, in a lot of places at all. So we, another, is it a fair statement question um, to say that it was, uh, it, it predates the term diverse or diversity and inclusion. And they were just about that life before that was even a concept. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Instead of saying the massacre or race riot of Tulsa 1921, would should it be called or referred to as the attack on Greenwood 1921? And if so, please share why. That's the phrase that I've been using a lot, is the attack on Greenwood. Uh, first of all, it was not a riot. Uh, 56 black men were criminally charged for inciting a riot. And the, the criminal charge against them was not uh, dropped 
until 1996. So, so we have to end the use of that the use of that word right now. <laughs> um, to to be just and fair to the to the people of Greenwood, they did not they were not the perpetrators of this uh, of this violence. So then we move into using the word massacre, which to me implies that the target of this violence was the people of Greenwood, and it certainly was. But when you take a look at the fact that two divisions of the National Guard were dispatched to evacuate the neighborhood of Greenwood before torches were set to homes, um, before uh, these airplanes were dropping uh, bombs on houses and, and businesses. The, 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 the death toll of the massacre is right around 300. We think it's more. Um, but you're talking about a, a neighborhood of more than 10,000 people. So the fact that there were, and uh, you know, the, 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 the fact that there were 300 deaths, there could have been 3,000 deaths. There could have been six, seven, 8,000 deaths. But they intentionally and systematically moved, evacuated this neighborhood before they set fire to it. The target of this violence was the land. So we need to go back to that story of who owns the land, who wants to own the land, how valuable is the land? Remember, it was, it was on this crossroads of four railroad tracks. That's like being on the highest speed gigabit internet you could possibly be on, you know, uh, in terms of uh, how much that impacted Greenwood's uh, economic prosperity and ease of people being able to travel in and out of Greenwood. Um, the people in power, and I'm talking about the mayor, the city commission, the police department, real estate developers, commercial developers, what they wanted to do was erase this neighborhood off the map, buy it up, build a central train depot so that they could have control of all of the downtown area. Mm. There was a there was a black part of downtown Tulsa and there was a white part of downtown Tulsa and, and they, they just wanted to own it all. Well, it was let, really let, just greed that, that is the cause of this attack on Greenwood. Let me jump in here and ask a question because I'm looking at um, the, the comments and, and, and Mr. Walto is, is, is chiming in and joining on our conversation. Um, so what 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 he's saying is there was an it was an attack on Indians and Indian land and Indian territory. Now the reason why I I, I wanted to to insert this because a couple of things this is in 1921 I believe right so this is after it becomes a state right now you you gentlemen made it clear that there was things happening before that actually happened and once it happened we saw kind of different things that lead up to this point. So in those, what what could that be? Uh, 1907 to 1921, what is that? Uh, 12 years maybe? I don't know. But in, <laughs> in those 10 or so, 10, 12, 15 years, 
at what point do, is is there any reclassification? I don't want to take the story to the left, but is there any reclassification of 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 citizens? Uh, are there any um, micro uh, attacks prior to the this evening or this day? You know what? Is there anything that gave wind besides? Uh, Dick Rawlin at the Drexel building that's considered the 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 what what caused all of this. When you say what caused, you mean what uh, what precipitated the the invasion and the the attack? Uh, yes, yes. What? Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, there are. I mean, how much time you got, bro? Because there were hundreds. Um, there were literally hundreds. I mean. Um, there were um, flyers passed, uh, put on black people's homes in Muskogee and in, and other parts of and uh, uh, parts of Greenwood about Negro get out before you know before uh, what, midnight I think it is or Sunday yeah midnight. Um, there um, you know was as Carlos mentioned already a very clear plan that they that that the cap that the, the the white men of industry and commerce wanted the land right um so that was that was clear to you know most white folks and folks in the know um knew what this was about uh, at least you know those leaders if you will um but also there were um there were three lynchings that occurred um and two of them, and two of them are very—I mean, they're all notable. But two of them are very, very, very notable in terms of how uh, it really there these lynchings really disquiet, you know, disquieted the um, the black communities. So one was of a white man in Tulsa, right, and uh, named Roy Belton, and um, you know. Folks were like, well, you know, and and understand, right? There was, well, what's the name of the of the group, Carlos? But there's a group of white men who just decided they were the moral uh, vigilante of, uh, vindicators of everything wrong, and so they went, they got into the jail, they were allowed in the jail, they get and got Roy Belton, and they took him out and they lynched him. And black folks were like, they don't do that to one of their own, right? We already know what they've been doing to us, and they do that to one of their own. You know, these folks are, yeah. Go ahead. The person that they lynched. Who is this person? First, before we we can't just hover over that. How did they get to the point where these these white men went into the jail to get one of their own? I'll let Carlos take that part, and then and then I'll go back to the other lynching. I I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's like a really big piece of the. You're good. No, you're good. (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, so his name was Roy Belton. Uh, I don't, I can't remember um, what the criminal charge was against him. It was um, rape and, um, it was rape and then murder of a young girl. Yes, okay, yes, right, right. There. So there was, there was the lynching of Roy Belton. Um, and, 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 in this, you got to remember again. You're talking about a boom town, uh, a place that grew incredibly fast. You've got um, corruption in the police force. You've got corruption among the judges. 
you've got this sort of wild west justice that happens. And anytime you look at the history of lynchings, um, whenever the police look away, whenever the police just turn a blind eye, that's when this sort of vigilante justice comes in. And so the sheriff at the time, the police chief at the time were notorious. And there were no, there were newspaper articles weekly about this. Mm-hmm. They were notorious for not doing their job. They just simply, there were two uh, escapes from the uh, jailhouse by literally, I mean, it's, this sounds like a cartoon, but literally they would tie the sh- their sheets together and, and climb out the window. Um, and like I said, I mean, that sounds like something out of Warner Brothers, but it happened here. Um, and so you have these uh, events that keep happening. Um, and so Greenwood is, just has no confidence and trust that, uh, um, that when Dick Rowland is arrested, that he's not going to be treated the same way. Right. And so now to get back to that point where our people are like, well, if they're doing it to them, their own, what are you, okay. I just had for the audience purpose and mine, who this white man was who got lynched. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. No, you don't need to apologize at all. Um, and so the second was of a, a young man in Oklahoma city um, named Claude Chandler and uh Claude Chandler and his daddy ran uh, a moonshine business and um, Oklahoma city police came to bust up the moonshine business. Um, Daddy Chandler shot a cop and killed him. The cop shot daddy Chandler, killed him. And Claude, uh, Claude was there and uh, was arrested um, and taken to jail. And then uh, to Carlos's point, the Oklahoma city police just, Oh, we didn't see this mob come in and get this kid out of the jail, <laughs> right? Um, we just conveniently left the, the gave him the keys and or left the, the 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 cage unlocked. And so they took Claude about ten miles west of um, Oklahoma City, um, and they tortured him and then and they hung him, right? Um, and one of the things that's interesting about this particular and this was just this was August of nineteen twenty, right? Um, and so one of the things that's interesting about that is that um, police, Oklahoma City police went to Deep Deuce. That was the black community in Oklahoma City, Deep Deuce or Deep Second, right? Ralph Ellison um, was a child when this happened um, in Oklahoma City. Um, and so the there, so the men, black men gathered to go find uh, to try and go find Claude and the police, you know, and there were hundreds of them in cars and the police said, no, nope, we'll let two carloads of men go. And so they actually did let two carloads of men go to try and find Claude. Um, and, you know, he was found, you know, as I said, hanging um, from a tree about 10 miles west of Oklahoma city. And this is August, 1920. And that shook the black community in Oklahoma City, it also shook the black community in Tulsa, right? Um, I could tell you a story about Ralph Ellison and his what his mama did regarding that, but um, I mean, if you want, I can tell you that. Um, 
Absolutely, because so, uh, it's all relative. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so uh, Ralph's mom was widowed. Um, Daddy was already deceased, and um, so she was raising two boys. Ralph had a younger, a younger, uh, a younger son, and um, uh, a younger brother, I should say. And so after this Chandler lynching and uh, the disruption it caused in the community. Um, Miss Ida, her name is Ida Ellison. She decided that she was going to take the boys and move to Gary, Indiana, where her brother worked in this in the in the steel mills. And um, they um, stopped by Greenwood. They come through Greenwood on their way to Gary. Um, and again, this is uh, this is summer fall, nineteen twenty, and Greenwood is still alive and thriving and very different than Deep Deuce. Uh, in large part because black folks own most of their land and their property and in deep deuce that was not the case and so um they stopped by to see family in greenwood on their way to gary um and ida can't find a job in gary uh, ralph ellison and his brother literally eating um eating garbage out of trash cans um and one of her good friends um is going to chicago um, in the summer of 21 uh, to see family and thought, I'm going to go check on Ida. And when she gets to Gary, you know, which is right adjacent to, essentially to Chicago, not, not far low, um, she discovers that they look horrible. The kids are dirty and emaciated and, and Ida's not working. Um, and brother had lost his job in the mill. And so she's like, okay, let's go home. So they all pack up and they come back on their way back to Oklahoma City and they stop in Greenwood and Greenwood is gone. Wow. Um, so that is, um, Ralph writes about it a bit, mostly in his correspondence. Um, not, it's not, didn't really manifest overtly in any of his, of his fiction. Um, but he, in his correspondence, he, that story is very present. And so, um, so that's that story, but that was right. all connected to the lynching of Claude Chandler. And so, I mean, and there were again, um, and then as I see the brother in the chat, the Okima, um, the, the, the hanging of Laura Nelson and her children in Okima. Um, yeah, it was, it was, that was awful. Right. Um, and that also, and Okima is much closer to Tulsa, right. Than Oklahoma city. Uh, and that had a that had a, a huge effect um, on where folks were, um, how folks felt. And yep, and just to piggyback on something, I'm going to shut up and let Carlos talk. Is that he mentioned the Tulsa Star, and so A.J. Smitherman, uh, who was the editor and publisher of the Tulsa Star, who was also an attorney involved in in the Guardian cases too, which is also a fascinating story um, to 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 talk about at some point. Uh, particularly with the Killers of the Flower Moon, about the the film about to drop, um, but Smitherman was all was was very vocal, very loud um, in his op-ed pieces and his great poetry about uh, pushing against this racism and this killing and this lynchings and this segregation, and which was why he was. Um, one of the folks, as uh, Carlos mentioned a moment ago, one of the folks, he was considered the ringleader of mm. the Black community of Greenwood 
um, in this defiance and in, in this, you know, alleged riot. Um, and but he was always pushing against the system. He was always calling the governor out, calling the city council out, calling the mayor of Tulsa out. And so, I mean, and that was, you know, it, the Tulsa Star was the first black daily newspaper in the country. So he was on this kind of game every day, right? And so that created. Um, that didn't create very good relations <laughs> with with, right. with folks either who wanted this need this, this brother to shut up. You know what I mean? Um, so there are many many other factors that that precipitated. You know, um, but the the Dick Rowland Sarah Page elevator incident was just a convenient ruse. That right. that's all it was. So let, let let me ask you all this, and there's two questions in this one question one Tulsa as a whole had a white mayor is what I'm hearing okay so I think that's something to be noted because as the story is misrepresented everything is black in Tulsa which is why it's important to 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 specify Greenwood um as far as Dick Rowland and and the lynchings that you all just just kind of laid out for us is 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 it an, another fair assessment to say that and a gentleman who was like spearheading the voice of the people w w were there any calls to preparedness figuring that you know it's about to go down we need to start strapping up and uh um, um defending our community did this happen at all yeah it did um uh Smitherman would write um, several articles uh, in in the Tulsa Star about um, <clears throat> we need he he even um, advocated for the black community to split their political affiliations because back then if you were black chances are you were a Republican because of the party of Lincoln right but we get to a point in history where the Republican Party is really taking the black vote for granted. And Smitherman believes that the Republicans are not doing anything for black communities. And so he sets up first the Muskogee star when he was living in Oklahoma and, and or was living in Muskogee and then brings that paper down to Tulsa, starts up the Tulsa star as a, a kind of a, I don't know, the MSNBC of, <laughs> the black community of saying, you know, we need to be Democrats and we need to split this vote and we need to demand that the political party do right by us. Um, and, and he was very vocal against, um, uh, as, you know, as Q said, against the powers that be, against the mayor, against the city commission and the things that they were trying to do. There was a housing ordinance that was passed that racially segregated housing in the city of Tulsa in 1916. Um, and Smitherman and, and, and uh, several other community leaders, uh, including uh, O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford, um, were, were very vocal and said, we do not want this uh, for, for our city. Um, but nonetheless, um, the powers that be did did pass that ordinance. And again, that housing ordinance that separates black from white, that wasn't repealed until 1957. Mm. 
So I, it, because it sounds like a lot comes from the 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 um, relationship of black in Oklahoma, it, it, even to this day, right? Because listening to you share that and break that down, it's almost like the same conversation black folk are having with the Democratic Party right now. So would, yeah. Would you say that the the so let me ask you this. We spoke about this off camera. I didn't mean to cut you off, but we spoke about this off camera, and I think this is a good time to ask this question based on what uh, uh you just shared. I was told to understand how the US, United States operate, you must understand how Oklahoma was established. And listening to what you all are saying, I, I'm starting to feel that is true. Could you could you kind of uh, uh, uh Break break that statement down in your belief or feeling of that. I mean, uh, you can look at the headlines today. You know, what is a state that is that is uh, the worst state in terms of banning books and outlaw outlawing the teaching of history? Oklahoma. What is the only state that voted for Trump in all seventy seven counties in both elections? Oklahoma. What is the worst state in the nation that did not protect its people from the COVID pandemic? Oklahoma, you know, um, the, so the, 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 the most destructive and violent act of domestic terrorism on U.S. soil is the 1921 race massacre. The second is the bombing of a federal building in Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh, a white supremacist. The story of, of, of the U.S. and race relations and racial violence is the story of Oklahoma. And not to mention, right, again, um, the, the Trail of Tears, the Long Walk, right, um, which precedes, you know, which precedes the massacre and, and, and the horrible legislation. The total ban on abortion <laughs> before, before the nation banned abortion before Do the Dobbs decision, Oklahoma had already implemented a total ban on abortion, right? We are second, I think maybe 50th, 49th or 50th in terms of education, right? And education funding. Um, we are, Oklahoma is I think number one in obesity, clinical obesity. Um, it's like number one or two in divorce. It's, but, but also, Oklahoma is also because it's one of the younger states in the in the in the union right in the nation it has also been a, a battleground and a litmus a litmus test for most of the civil rights legislation before it became civil rights legislation I mean Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall lit, pretty much lived in Oklahoma for about a decade right uh, a little more than a decade because he was always here because there was always there are always situations happening um, in which the NAACP legal defense team needed to come down and try and help out somebody who, you know, who wasn't uh, served justice correctly. Right. So because Oklahoma is also so young, right. A lot of those battles played out here in the court system here before they went to the Supreme court. That's another reason why, you know, I call the place the Walmart Republic, but, you know, most people, call, you know, refer to Oklahoma, Kansas, whatnot, as flyover country. 
but they don't really understand how important, how rich, and how crazy the history of this place really is. And it's really, and, and it's connections, the tentacles that connect to so many different things that have now, that are now federal legislation. I'll really start it here. I mean, so. Well, you know, so when, when I returned back to Kentucky, and I'm not even from Kentucky, I'm from the East Coast. I'm first generation in New York. Uh, but when I returned back from uh, Tulsa, everybody asked me how was my trip? And it was only, it's three words amazing, confusing, and sad, all at the same time, right? And and to, to piggyback off what you said and to get back to this story, right, I think it's a great full circle because, and, and you mentioned it earlier, Carlos mentioned it earlier, Black Wall Street wasn't even the term before this incident happens. So now we have a situation where they're marching people to concentration camps during this incident, Um the community is burnt, all these things happen, but then there's a resurgence of this community. Could you talk about that? Because most, I don't think anyone really knows, well, I don't say anyone, but that's not a, a popular narrative as it pertains to this story. It's not even a popular narrative in Tulsa. There, there's very few Tulsans who know and understand that Greenwood rebuilt. Uh, there's very few Tulsans that have seen the what the Williams Dreamland Theater looked like after it was burned down. And Lula Williams really, again, um, to, to just highlight how amazing these Black women leaders of this community were. What was her she, name? And Lula she? Williams. She, she really led the charge to rebuild the business district. Um, She's the first, somebody in Hollywood's going to have to correct me, but to my knowledge, she's the first person, not the first woman or the first black woman or the first black person, but the first person to own a chain of movie theaters. She had a Williams Dreamland Theater in Tulsa, but she also had Dreamland Theaters in Okmulgee and Muskogee and was planning more, you know. Uh, and had correspondence with it, it was fascinating to me to see all the correspondence between her and these black uh, production companies that existed before Hollywood was Hollywood. Um, you know, the, the, the Lincoln film company and the, and all these different film companies that were producing movies, she would write to them and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to show your movie in my theater and I'm going to pay you $5, you know, or, or something like that, you know, in this, in these letters. Uh, but she took the profits from her other two movie theaters to rebuild the Williams Theater. And that really inspires the rest of the community to say, all right, we're, we're not going to give this up. We're, we're going we're gonna to rebuild. We're going we're gonna to hold you know, this land that is ours. Um, and by 1925, 26, there's film footage um, by um, a gentleman by the name of Reverend Solomon Sir Jones. Um, and he takes his film footage of Greenwood and you would be forgiven for thinking this was footage was from before 21. Except that it's shot on 16 millimeter film stock and 16 millimeter film wasn't invented until 1924. So you know that this footage was after, right? Um, 
and it's a vibrant, thriving neighborhood once again, you know, um, to the point that, you know, like I mentioned at, at the beginning, Count Basie comes and, and to check this out, you know, what's this amazing place for all this jazz music and all this amazing stuff is happening. And Greenwood thrives for another 45 years until the highways come in and tear it down again. So, so wait a minute, because that's really, we're going to get to urban renewal, right? Because that's, that's happened around the nation, right? But at least for me, not even as a historian, but as a folklorist, um, 45 years, that's, that's very telling and important to the story because me personally, and, and this is one of the reasons why I had to go back and, and just kind of not even kind of redo my whole presentation because I was like, I have no clue what the hell I'm talking about <laughs> because you know, 45 years is a long time and it's a resurgent after a, a humongous um, um, event, if you will. And I, and I'm, I'm kind of well-read. I don't like to really say something like that because it sounds jerkish but i'm kind of well read i had no clue that the town not only rebuilt but 45 years because you know and i'm, I'm gonna give the floor back to you gentlemen correct me if i'm wrong but majority of the information disseminated about these black towns not just tulsa but in greenwood but black towns period that after, from from the turn of the century to the twenties, then it was over. It's done. No more of these black towns ever, because they were all done away with. But we're talking about forty five years from nineteen twenty four. So, what what is where does that leave us? What do you mean? Where does that leave us? What do you, what do you, wait, what do you mean? I, um, that that was a, a bad way of asking. What year? What, what, would that be when it actually comes to an end or gets gets hit by urban renewal? I'm, I'm assuming it's in that urban renewal era of the 50s mm -hmm. that every black community pretty much was attacked. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to let Carlos break that part of the question down. But I just want to mention on there that um, that 1941 was the district's economic height. So think about that, right? So it was double what it was in 1921, 20 years later. You, you know what's really ironic? That is, I could be wrong, but one of the peaks of Black popular music, right, as a business. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then you have, you know, another another peak, if you will, that happens in the late 50s with, you know, Chuck Berry. And, and then you've got the beginnings of, you know, um, what, uh, you know, Little Richard are starting to do and, and the beginnings of what uh, Ray Charles is starting to do. Um, uh, but you what you have at the same time and Greenwood was was very much in the center of this uh, uh, 
of this music conversation. I, I don't think people appreciate, you know, we talk about Memphis a lot. We talk about Chicago a lot, Detroit. Um, I really think Greenwood needs to be in the same sentence as these other places, but it's often not. Um, but it was very much on, on, on uh, first of all, Pulse is along Route 66. So that's number one. And number two, Greenwood is is very much on this Chitlin circuit that um, that arose uh, for, you know, when when Motown and Stax Records became so popular and you had these traveling acts that were going all over the place, this was a stopping point. Um, and so so where we're where the, this brings us to is the late 1950s. The city of Tulsa uh, drew up a comprehensive plan in 1957, and they drew up a concept that these highways would would be would draw a ring, kind of like what you see in D.C. Uh, a ring, the highways would be a ring around the downtown part of the city. Uh, but they didn't have the money to build this. Tulsa couldn't afford it, so they had to wait until the Model Cities program where the federal government came in and said, we'll pay 80% and all the city has to do is come up with 20%. But Tulsa wasn't on that list. So uh, the the mayor of Tulsa at the time in um, 67, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he basically wines and dines the secretary, the, the secretary of transportation for the US at what is uh, <laughs> poetically called the Petroleum Club building in downtown Tulsa. So he takes Secretary of Transportation to the Petroleum Club, wines and dines him, all, all the best, spare no expense. And lo and behold, Tulsa ends up as the 58th city on this list of model cities where they would the federal government would come in and basically subsidize the building of these highways um, and as happens in, in, in all those other cities, uh, it, the highways, there's two of them, Highway 244 and then um, US 75 that is built right through this Greenwood uh, area. And through eminent domain, the city just basically steals all of this land to the point that um, black people uh, don't don't end up not owning any of the land that was once their home uh, in Greenwood. And, and this happened in many other cities, the city that where I'm from, uh, the, the neighborhood that my dad grew up in, um, working class Mexican neighborhood in San Jose, California is Highway 280 today. You know, um, so this is a, this is an American story, but again, it, 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 um, some of the worst effects of this policy uh, were, were here in Greenwood. Um, I have a question. I just have to write this down because when you said this is an American uh, uh, story, the, the, the two words that came to my mind was American color or the color of America. I don't know why. I just had to write that down real quick. <laughs> um, so I, I've, uh, uh, conducted some interviews here in, in Bowling Green about Jonesville and they were hit with urban renewal. Um, so the question I have is what I was told was, the, so like 
Greenwood, 98% of the people in this community, if I, I hope I'm quoting this correctly, please, anyone, any person from uh, Black Bowling Green, uh, uh, give me grace if I'm not correct on the numbers, but I believe 98% of the, the, the families and the people own their properties. And they were told that these properties were, um, I can't think of the technical term, but they were not in livable conditions. And that's why they were blighted. You know they were blighted. Yeah. Right. So the question I'm asking was, is how was, how did that look in Greenwood? Were they telling them these properties were blighted? How did that work? Please expound on this. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh well, all right. Um, yeah, no, it, it it is it is the same story, and you hear it over and over again. Um, they they devalued the property, right? So you've heard of redlining when when they come in and say this is they draw up a map and they say this is not a safe neighborhood, right? And so when insurance companies and, and again, the sort of the powers that be, when they come in and the, the banks won't lend money to, for people to buy houses in this area, when insurance companies won't insure the houses, when real estate companies won't uh, um, show these houses, they become abandoned, they become blighted. When eminent domain comes and builds a highway through your neighborhood, all of the all of the destruction and construction waste and all that stuff and, and, and pollution and everything that results from that um, when they're tearing down the land to have room for this machinery that's going to build these highways, they never build any of it back. And so this becomes um, a, a, a blighted area, not, and, and it, the story is, well, you know, they're just not taking care of their own neighborhood. Well, no, the city has come in and they have, you know, done significant amount of damage to this neighborhood financially and and just in the course of tearing down these houses and building highways, um, that that Greenwood financially, economically is not able to recover from from this. You know, and so to this day, you still have large swaths of of North, the northern part of Tulsa, which is predominantly black, um, where it's just empty, empty lots, empty, you know, just empty fields where there's just nothing there. Um, you have a very disconnected uh, community where before you had an incredibly dense and connected community, you know. So I. If you know, either one of you, I, I don't know if, how fair this question is, because understanding that Greenwood was at the pinnacle when this began, how were they able to uh, convince or even marginalize such a, a, a financially secure community, if, 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 if you can share that with us? Well, Greenwood just simply didn't have the political power. They had no representation in city council. They had, as you pointed out, the mayor, the mayor's, the, the mayor of Tulsa has never been black. <laughs> um, 
they simply had no representation in the seats of power. Um, it wasn't until I believe the 1990s that Tulsa even had a black person sitting on the city uh, council. They had to change the entire system of local government. It was a commission, it used to be called the Tulsa Commission. Uh, and they had to change it to where you now have regional representations. And so there's, the Tulsa is now split up into nine districts and you have um, uh, nine people each representing their own area of the city sitting on the city council. Well, even, even at that, only one of them uh, represents her northern part of the city, her district, um, and she's the only black person on, on the city council, you know? Um, so to this day, they don't have the black people in Tulsa do not have the political power, the political representation. The, one of the proposals during this urban renewal era was to build a highway through Maple Ridge, which is one of the richest, um, neighborhoods in the city, but they did have representation. So there were advocates who could come to city hall and say, we don't want this happening in our neighborhood. And the city councilor of their area where the city commissioner of their area listened to them and said, all right, we're, we're not going to build a highway through the white part of town. We're going to build it through the black part of town. So I, I would say that's a perfect segue into um, today, right? So we said we wanted to speak prior to, during, after, and I guess you could say present, right? Um, of, of of Greenwood, and I was able to see that you you all are doing some great things uh, historically, culturally, art wise, um, advocate um, advocating. What are some of the what are some of the uh, what's how can I word this um, uh, remaining issues from what we've discussed, and what are some of the things that you all are doing? Uh, now uh, to to I guess combat these things because you, you, you the both of you mentioned some things in the um, in the presentation right and if you can, if you can't speak about the case then I won't ask but just what um, what's what's going on now from the rem reminisce of what has happened well um, you know one the case um you know and justice for greenwood that there are still we still have three survivors with us um but i think and carlos would probably agree i think that the state is trying to wait them out till their death um their deaths to um try and dismiss this whole case um so that's one um and if anyone out there wants to contribute and it's justice for greenwood Org, I believe. And when um, you get a chance, please tell us what the case is about, too. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, well, I'll let Carlos go into to the case in a, in a moment, um, more deeply in a moment. But I, I think, and this might not have been quite the answer you were looking for, bruh, but the residuals of, of the massacre and the residuals of um, the Model Cities Project and the, uh, and the highways continue to exist today. So for example, um, before the massacre, the district had seven hospitals and now there's not one. 
um, before, you know, before um, the massacre, there were uh, almost 30 grocery stores and now there's one. The, uh, the mortality rate for black residents uh, in North Tulsa um, is 11 years, folks live 11 years fewer, 11 fewer years than white folks, even five miles down the road to the south, right? Um, our, um, the, the, the percentage of black and brown women dying in childbirth is, is, is above the national average. Um, and the stigma continues. And so, for example, um, about two months ago now, um, there was a, a, an unfortunate, horrible, tragic shooting at, a, at one of the black high schools um, in North Tulsa. And um, the, it was at a football game. Um, and uh, the man who shot, uh, shot a, three people um, was a 20-year-old man. He was not a student at the school, but it happened at the school, at the football stadium, at a game at night. The way that the local news media has uh, have uh, covered this story has made North Tulsa the perpetrator. Not the 20-year-old kid or young man who did the shooting, but North Tulsa pulled the trigger, right? You would not see that kind of coverage in that way about what happened in Sandy Hook or Columbine and those were, or Parkland, Florida. And those are horrible tragedies, right? But the way that the local news media has, has, has vilified the community, like the community pulled the trigger. To that end, schools now aren't, they're saying, we're not going to play McLean. We're not going to come, we're not going to, we're just not going to play the football team at all, right? Um, and that is directly connected to the stigma. And that's directly connected, and that stigma is directly connected to the segregation and the racism that is hundreds of years old. So, between the lack of services, the lack of resources, um, the lack of opportunity, economic opportunities, and other opportunities, um, and that stigma that just that's that stigma not going anywhere, right? Um, it is the, the the results and the residuals of the massacre and the highway were going to continue to exist. And then, and then to, to close on the point, just to reiterate a point Carlos made, we don't, Black folks don't own anything and Black folks don't have much of a voice or a seat at most tables either. So I, I, I want to stay with you for a second and correct me if I'm wrong. You're a professor as well, as well as a, a poet, author, and filmmaker. Uh, well, I'm not a filmmaker, but the other things, yes. Okay. The, the, now, the reason why I ask this, because being a black male professor in front of a class is, is needed, but very, definitely not easy. Based on everything you just shared, are you seeing 
are you seeing young black males and females for that matter uh taking more of an interest uh nowadays in what we've been discussing and how can we address that if they're not i think it depends on where you are um and i think it depends on you know the community of young people with whom you are you are working but by and large the answer is no (laughs) um now i will say that there's more awareness of greenwood and of the massacre since the centennial or or maybe since 2020 um and in part because of all of the media attention and the projects, the documentary I w- was a part of and so on and others that brought attention to the massacre for the centennial. But you also need to note that nothing about Greenwood or the massacre was taught in K-12 education in this state until roughly five years ago. It was not taught. And so I grew up in a town, a smaller town than Tulsa, about an hour and 40 minutes away Um, And I, just like every kid who grew up in this state, had to take an Oklahoma history class in eighth or ninth grade, and it was not there. Right? It was just, it's not taught. Um, And it's not just, and and rarely, rarely discussed prior to the centennial in any real way. Um, And so... I have not, I mean, I've, I've been teaching my green class on, you know, on Greenwood for what, two and a half years now. Um, but, um, you know, it, there are kids in my, in that class, students in that class a year ago from North Tulsa who didn't know about the massacre. That's not, that's sad, but it's not, unfortunately, it's not surprising. Right. And nowadays, everything is in in that, I guess you could say, uh, a category is considered critical race theory. So that gives it another extra added. Yeah, that that critical that Oklahoma's House Bill seventeen seventy five, Oklahoma's ban on critical race theory was passed during the centennial of the Tulsa race massacre. Okay, so just. Let that resonate for a second. I'm gonna turn it over. I'm gonna turn over the mic, Carlos. I have to ask you a question. Uh, um, that last statement, my brother Q, hit me very hard. <laughs> and um, as a graphics designer, and, and is it safe to say that you work in new media and transmedia? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um. So I, I pose the same question to you. Do you see uh, uh, folks of color more invested in utilizing these platforms to to tell these stories? I, I think there's a long way to go, but I think the curiosity is there. I was just out in Clinton, Oklahoma, which is uh, about uh, it's about an hour and a half uh, south uh, west of Oklahoma City. Um, and, and the, the kids in the high school, there were very curious. Uh, they had a lot of questions. They had a lot of very good questions. One of their questions was, you know, does the KKK still exist today? And I, and I kind of turned it back on the classroom and I said, what do you guys think? You know, what, what do you think about, you know, uh, 
Zach De La Roca singing some of those that workforces are the same that burn crosses. Like, what does that mean? What is he talking about there in that song? And that song is not that old. I mean, I mean, I don't think of it as that old. The kids think of it as, as his old song. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about a reaction to the uh, 1991, was it? Uh, beating of Rodney King is when that, you know, is when they responded to that violence with that song. And uh, and there were kids in the class who's, who were like, yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with that song. I know what I know what they're talking about. I know they're talking about police violence against black people. And and we know that it, that it happens and it's a reality that we have to live with today. Um, so I think the kids are, um, they're curious, they need access to more resources and more information. Um, uh, but I, I've taught uh, on this topic at universities, but also um, at, from the fifth grade level to the high school, high school you know, level. Um, and I do think that there's more um, just more of a curiosity of, you know, what is this all about? And it's tough to unpack it in an hour, you know, um, but you, you hope that you leave some uh, trails for, for these kids to follow and, and some inspiration too. I mean, they have to know that it's, yes, there were bad things that happened. Yes, there were violent things that happened and still continue to happen. But look, at you can't ignore the accomplishments of this neighborhood, of this place, of these people, because um, that's also a disservice, right? If you don't, if you don't teach the good things that have come out of this place, um, if you don't highlight how important it is, um, then the kids are left, you know, not being inspired or not having a a, a role a role model, not having a, a not realizing where they're coming from, you know, and that some of their own family members, people in their own ancestry, um, you know, would have been the rebuilders of Greenwood, would have been the people who came out of Greenwood building, you know, um, you know, I write about Mabel Little, she built um, airplanes for World War II and got promoted twice and ended up working at Lockheed Vega in LA. Um, and running her whole department. Um, you know, that's the level of excellence. Dr. Charles Beatty conducting the first community health screenings in the country. Uh, that comes from here, you know. Um, Emmett J. McHenry built the domain name registry. We wouldn't be having this conversation online <laughs> if it wasn't for Emmett J. McHenry, who's, you know, he's still around, he's still inventing. Um, he's still still doing amazing things in technology, but he never gets the the credit like you know um, Steve Jobs and all those other guys get. Well, uh, so two more questions. Ironically, when you said it's not enough to unpack within the hour, I have like eight questions. I think I only asked you guys four, <laughs> which is okay. Um, so the, the last two questions. First one is, would you please share us, share with us the case that you guys are working on, what, what you're allowed to share without, you know? Yeah, that, so there's uh, a lawsuit that has been filed, but, and um, it was, there were several plaintiffs in the case 
and the the, the plaintiffs in the case that the judge um, uh, has allowed to continue the hearings in this case have been the three remaining survivors of the massacre. They were they are 108 and 107 years old, and I. I think two two other survivors, if I'm not mistaken, are 107 and one's 108. Um, and um, the city is about to file a third motion to dismiss this case. Um, and if you look at the history of of court cases um, of black folks trying to claim insurance, you know, damages. Black folks trying to sue the city for reparations. Um, this isn't the first lawsuit. Um, there was a lawsuit that uh, was filed in um, uh, at the end of 01, beginning of 02, that went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2005, but the Supreme Court refused to hear that case. So now, 17 years later, Greenwood is trying again to have its day in court. Um, and and it's we're kind of in a wait and see moment at this point um, to see if the judge is going to allow this case to, to be heard. And before I get to the last question, I just want to be uh, asked about that. Is it based on the intention uh, premeditated, um, thought-out action that led to the massacre and the the concentration camps and the burnings and and, and things of this nature is that what uh, and, and those who are still alive that suffered from all of the above? I hope that is what comes out during uh, the discovery. Um, phase of this trial if it does go to that if it does get to that step that is one of the things that i'd like to see is that because there are court cases that establish this um that this was a planned act by the mayor by the city commission by uh real estate developers and other city leaders uh including the police department um um and so I, i'm hoping that comes to light in the in in the courtroom, I'm hoping that uh, this um, uh, continued attack on Greenwood in the form of redlining, in the form of urban renewal, in the form of gentrification, um, that those factors come into this uh, trial as well, um, because it is it is something where Greenwood has been attacked not just once, but over and over and over again. And like I said, the housing ordinance wasn't repealed till 57. These black men who were criminally charged, their charges were not dropped until 1996. So it's, it's incorrect to say that this was an event that happened 101 years ago. Let's just forget about it. No, the ripple effects have been ongoing throughout the decades over and over and over again. Um, and so that's one of the things that I'm hoping um, comes through in this trial as well. Ooh, have, have, 
as my brother and I always say, heavy, heavy, heavy. <laughs> um, so I guess the well, it's not I guess the last question I like to ask, particularly as a folklorist, is there anything that you wanted to or thought I should ask that I didn't, and you would like to address, gentlemen? There's a story that I'd love to find out whether it's true, how true, how true it is, how much of urban uh, myth or urban folklore it is versus what are the facts. Um, and that's around, uh, and Q, you might know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I've ever asked you about California Taylor. California Taylor, her family uh, was from Bully. Oklahoma. She was also connected to, and I'm not exactly sure if it's a familial connection or simply a business connection, but she had uh, a cotton gin that was located near the uh, suburb of what's today known as Jinx. Back then, uh, it was Rentis Town, which is a nut, which is. there's also a Rentiesville, which is a, one of the all-black towns um, in Indian territory. But there was a Rentis Grove, I think is what this neighborhood was called, um, um, in this area today is known as Jinx, Oklahoma. Um, and it's just to the south along the river. Supposedly, this was the largest cotton gin uh, west of the Mississippi. So this was a very wealthy family. and. And legend has it, again, I don't know. I don't know how much of this is true. I don't have any pictures or records or anything. Um, but the one of the first segregation laws that was passed in Oklahoma um, was about who could ride uh, in passenger train cars uh, on the railroad. So uh, this law, Senate Bill 1, the first, the first legisl- piece of legislation for the newly formed state of Oklahoma, Senate Bill 1 says, if you are a black person, you cannot ride in the same train car as a white person. So what they would do is they would take the uh, passenger cars for black people, and they would move those cars behind the cars where the animals were. So you can imagine in August, in Oklahoma, pre-air conditioning, riding in a passenger train car behind the animals. It's not a pleasant ride. It's not a pleasant train ride at all. Well, California Taylor was sick of this, and she built her own train car. Decked out, I mean, just completely the most luxury train car you could imagine. Velvet seats and gold, you know, um, railings and all the stuff. And she paid the rail companies to put her train car in front of all the other train cars. Um, and that's, and she would take her friends shopping um, in New York and they would come back with all these, you know, dresses and purses and the latest fashions and hats uh, from New York and stuff like that. So her, that was her way of sort of uh, um, giving the middle finger to segregation in Oklahoma. Um, and it's, I, I couldn't put that story in my book. 
because I couldn't substantiate it with any kind of historical records or anything like that. But that is that is the that is the legend of of California Taylor. Yeah, that I I am familiar with that story. I'm familiar with that legend. Um, I too have not been able to confirm uh, find anything to confirm its its truth. So I'm going. To, so I just choose to believe it. And Lamont, I think you should you should be telling that California story personally, but um, in in your folklore presentations. But I choose to believe it that it is true. Um, I will. I might even raise it a couple and say she was a blues musician. <laughs> hey, poetic license, my friend. Gentlemen, I, I really appreciate uh, your time. Let Oh, let the good folk know where to find your works and how to follow you all, please. Um, it's KoreishaliLansana.com is my website. TriCityCollective.com. Um, for all of our collective doings, and there are many, including Focus Black Oklahoma, which is focusblackoklahoma.com. And then we're on um, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, um, all the things. Um, And I think, yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah, also, again, uh, I will uh, repeat, Tri-City Collective, um uh you can find us on our website and all the social media um and uh the victory of greenwood.com is where you can find uh, my book again gentlemen thank you very much i hope you the listeners and viewers were able to learn some things or at least spark enough interest where you can go and dig deeper and find out the real story in the proper context we do again i don't want to say we're not upset with those who told the story wrong but that's an episode for another time what i will say is at least it was documented in some way so then we could come along and put it in a proper context for our folks right so go find out this information and pass it down, pass it up, and pass it sideways. Gentlemen, we will be doing this again when you have a chance. Good folk, I'll check y'all later.